the only thing I can do is play I Got Rhythm and tell a few stories, and it's, it makes me very happy. It makes John Pizzarelli's many fans very happy, too. He's a virtuoso musician, great performer, and first-class wit and storyteller, especially when talking about his father, the late great guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli. Standing backstage and my father saying to me, you know, uh, you know that new baseball mat you had from all your childhood? Uh, I just threw it out. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the John Pizzarelli trio. What? <laughs> and John and I have known each other a long time. He said to me when he came out for an encore, uh, what do you want to hear? And I said, Frim Fram Sauce. And you turned to the band and you said, Bud wants a food song. <laughs> I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey, the obstacles overcome, plan Bs, terrible first jobs, and the passion to pursue a dream. John Pizzarelli is a jazz and cabaret guitarist and performer extraordinaire. Whether it's in Tenafly or Taiwan, New York or New Zealand, his shows are unique. He is part musical aficionado, part Borscht Belt comic. He grew up listening to his father, Bucky Pizzarelli, and Bucky's jazz and cabaret friends. But growing up in suburban New Jersey in the 1970s, John was a singer and a player in a rock and roll band. That's where our story begins. Can we focus in on the name of the high school band that you had? <laughs> Johnny Pick and his scabs. Once you've hit comedy gold like that, where do you go from there? <laughs> Here's the question that comes to mind. What are the names that didn't make the cut? <laughs> that was one that was late in the game. We started, uh, the first one was Eminon, which is no name backwards. Then we went to, I joined a band called Omega, the last word in rock and roll. And uh, what had happened was somewhere, oh, there was a band called San Paku because that was the title of a Michael Franks song. And I thought that'd be cool, but evidently that's some sort of bad medical condition. Eventually, I replaced a band that was doing uh, Fridays or Saturdays at Nobody's Inn in Mawa. And so, because uh, the guy who ran Nobody's Inn didn't like the band, but he was like, you, you can do the same song. So I felt like we were the scabs. It was sort of like a union thing. So then I thought, oh, I'm Johnny Pick. And so it's Johnny Pick and his scabs. And hence, uh, rock history. Can I go back to Omega for a second? Uh, <laughs> sure. You said Omega had a subtitle as well? The last word in rock and roll. You know, so many of the great rock and roll bands did have subtitles in their name. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you have a colon after you know like omega colon that's the path to success apparently i, I think we needed a colonoscopy <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you're getting gold right off the bat can you recall actually specifically recall a first time that you picked up an instrument well there were a lot of times i picked them up when i was really young probably in you know when i was like three years old I think the first time that it was really satisfying was when I had the tenor banjo. I was about six years old and I uh, went to Victor's House of Music in Ridgewood to take lessons from my father's uncle, Bobby. The thing that was exciting about it was you, you went through the notes at the beginning, plunk, 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 plunk. And then at the end, the last 10 minutes was learning a song. So we'd say, we're going to learn uh, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. All right. 
and you'd play bum 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 dum, and he'd literally show you. Just put your fingers here and strum and and play it. And then in about a week or two, I had the song. And then what I didn't realize was on Sunday when we went to his brother Pete's house, my father's sort of uh, uh, second father was Pete Dominic, and both of those guys could play. But uh, Pete and Bobby were amazing musicians, uh, completely different but amazing. And it's hey, we're gonna play after uh, after dinner. Get your banjo. I was like, oh, so I was, I'd sit there and I'd go jing 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 jing. That's my baby boom, and I'd start to play it. And all of a sudden, all the stuff that they were playing, my father and Pete and around me, I was like, wow, I'm really good. <laughs> I didn't realize how good I was at this. And uh, it was just this amazing kind of oh, this is fantastic. The sound of all that music around what I was doing, I was like. That was really exciting. The lessons became more about learning songs and less about, you know, learning the notes. It's like, well, what's the next song? Well, the next one's Bye Bye Blues. Okay, well, let's, let's get one of those together. That was really the excitement. It wasn't about really the first time I picked up the guitar, but it was the first time I picked up an instrument and went, this is something. You and I are about the same age and our influences are the same as we are growing up. So you're 13 years old and you want to be who musically? I guess I, there was obviously everybody wanted to be a, the, the sixth or seventh Beatle. So there was always the thing about the Beatles. Uh, when I was 12 was the first time then I, I picked up the guitar. And the first song I learned was Elton John's Country Comfort. When I started to realize that the tablature in the, in the books was something, that got to be exciting. So I could pick up a book and go, oh, it's sort of like the banjo, it just has two more strings and you press down and you strum. So, and I started to play along with records. So I think it was between the beat, at, at 13, it was the Beatles, but I was, the, the big thing was the radio had come into our life. Uh, when I was about 10, we got a clock radio. Martin and my brother and I shared a bedroom. We had the clock radio and then every Sunday in the daily news, they'd list the top five tunes and I would cut it out and put it under the radio. So. I was really getting into, because of my sisters, the pop music, but it was still the Beatles. I think the Beatles were at the top. Everybody wanted to be a Beatle. And how'd that work out? Uh, never made it. Got to play with one of them, which was very exciting. So that worked out pretty well. And uh, the, the best part about it was when you finally were in a room with Paul McCartney, as I was about seven or eight years ago, uh, you realize, oh, he's really good. He's really good at what, <laughs> there's a reason why he's a big star. <laughs> It's the reason why everybody, you can just show this picture to anybody on the, on the planet and say, who's that? And they go, oh, that's Paul McCartney, Beatle. He's a Beatle. Apparently, he went to lessons at Uncle Pete's as well and, <laughs> and did okay. But he never okay. ate the meatballs. He wouldn't eat the meatballs. You're at high school, Don Bosco Prep in North Jersey. Tell us about your exploits in the marching band. <laughs> Well, along the way, what had happened was, is in fourth grade, I picked up the trumpet uh, because it was either between Benny Goodman on the clarinet or, or Doc Severinsen on the trumpet. I figured one of those instruments would actually lead a band. So I played the trumpet and then I got into the band. Freshman year, they were just coming off of two big years of marching in, in the, the Cherry Blossom Parade and all the parades that they did and winning awards. So freshman year, there was like 125 kids all in a room in August, and then learning how to, you know, spell out guilt on the football field. <laughs> and, uh, I, was and not, so, I was not aware of that. That's uh, 
Interesting little <laughs> subtext there. It was a great halftime show. <laughs> but sophomore year, we it weeded out quickly. Uh, was a different leader. But it was fun to be in the band. And we marched in the St. Patrick's Day Parade and the Columbus Day Parade. And uh, we had a guy join uh, who led the band who got uh, the, the jazz band at high school was no longer going to be like in the mood and Moonlight Serenade and all the all the, like the, the Glenn Miller things that they would play, which were great. But he like brought the charts to The Letter and uh, Honky Tonk Woman, the, the Joe Cocker charts. He, he wrote them out and we played them. And I got to play the trumpet solo on, uh, I think it was Honky Tonk Woman. Oh, no, or Letter. One of them or both of them. And we just had a lot. Of, and all of a sudden it was the band was becoming a lot more. That was the fun place to be. I got in a lot of trouble for cutting Jim to go up to the band room just to hang out. And they finally found me one day and I survived Mr. Fanner's wrath. Later on, as you have an established career at these various uh, august and uh, wonderful venues that you've played all over the world, when they're expecting you to play the guitar, have you ever considered a little surprise for you folks tonight taking out the trumpet? <laughs> no, you know what happened was is I, uh, I had a really great trumpet teacher in uh, college. I went to the University of Tampa for three uh, wonderful semesters, and there was a teacher there named Ron Byerly who was an absolutely fantastic teacher because uh, he, he led with uh, violence. Uh, he was a very short man and he just led like with, well, if you're not going to practice, don't ever show up again in my room, <laughs> which was putting it mildly. And so then when I came back the following week, he's like, no, okay, you know, when we started again and taught me how to actually warm up, uh, the, the, the idea of playing the trumpet is a lot like running. You got to stretch before you actually do what you do and at the end of what you've done. There was an art to it. And so what I actually, what I learned was is the trumpet is hard. And so by the age of 21, I was like, there'll be no more, no more trumpet. Every once in a while, I'll, you know, I take uh, Tony Cadillac, who plays in our band, who's an excellent trumpet player. And I'll say, hey, you want to hear uh, Trumpeter's Lullaby? And I go, do 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 And I give it back to him. I play like four bars. And he always laughs. He goes, oh, that's great. And actually, uh, the uh, Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra, when, uh, we toured Japan, oh, about 10 years ago. They made me the honorary sixth trumpet player in their band because I was the guy they would call upon to end the jam sessions because there'd be jam sessions in these clubs and everybody's like, well, we're going to play all night. And they'd say, get Pizzarelli. And, that, and they'd give me the trumpet and I would, I would start to play. And everybody'd say, I think the jam session's over. Yeah. Look at the time. To say that you grew up around music is putting it mildly, largely because of your father, Bucky Pizzarelli and his friends. First of all, can you tell us some of the first names of the friends? <laughs> My wife likes the kids. She goes, you don't have any, you don't have any friends named Al. <laughs> it was Zoot, Slam, there was Bucky, Benny, uh, Les Paul, Joe Venuti. It was a good group of guys and colorful. The, the best part about it was they had so much fun together. And half the time I didn't realize how great they all were. These people were in the house and I thought, well, that guy's... Jimmy Rolls, he's a very good piano player. I've enjoyed him on Zoot Sims records. And, you know, then learning years later, well, he played with Billie Holiday and everybody else. Yeah. Oh, Slam Stewart with Art Tatum, you know, it was crazy. So as a kid, are these just, oh, these are my father's friends and they're, they're pretty talented. I can tell they're pretty good musically and they're funny and they're laughing a lot and that's it. Or is there some sense of, wow, this is not like when I go over to Joey's house 
you know, the <laughs> friends his father has of it. <laughs> you knew that they were great musicians. I mean, I was under, I, I knew how great they were. I think the best part was I didn't really realize how great they were or else that could have led to, hey, you're a really great saxophone player. And I knew when you played with Woody Herman back in 1952. <laughs> and can you tell me? And then they would have been like, I got to go, Bucky. So yeah. that was the better part that we, we sort of didn't know. And actually, Les Paul, I finally corralled him in 1985 at a gig at Rutgers where they had the New Jersey guitar players. And I was there to sing I Like Jersey Best. And everybody else was there to play jazz. And it was my dad and Tal Farlow and Les Paul. And at the, the dinner break, I finally just said to him, so... What's that thing on uh, Lover where somebody goes, there's this noise. <laughs> Is that, who's playing drums on it? He goes, there's no drums. And then proceeded to talk about making all those records and had no, you know, he, was, he remembered everything. And it was stunning to go, oh, well, that was how you made How High the Moon or Lover or Nola or all these crazy records that I enjoyed. So that every once in a while I had to figure out the question that got everybody going. So as you're a kid in high school and you're playing music and you're surrounded by music and you're listening to music, is the thought, I want to do this? Or is it not quite so clear at that point? I really enjoyed being in bands. Uh, my friends liked me because I had all the equipment. You know, I had all the amplifiers. <laughs> and I had a couple of basses, six string basses. Little did I know the six string bass that I had taught my friend on was the same six string bass that was on uh, Run Around Sue and Stand By Me and those kind of records. You know, take the Dan Electro and you play, you know, 25 or six to four. <laughs> and, and we'd all plug into the same amplifier. So, but I really enjoyed that. And my father, I realized, was like, oh, you got a you got a gig, you got something to do tonight. Oh, well, we're gonna play a rehearsal. Oh, we're having rehearsal. There was something about. I think he he was going. Oh, well, he's got something that he's understanding that he likes. And that actually, you know, between that and playing baseball were the two things that I really enjoyed doing. And so there was just something about the camaraderie of both of those events that were always fun. You once said to me that you 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 were attracted to the laughter and to be part of that. You needed to to speak the language, and the language was honeysuckle rose. That's right, and that was the whole thing about being uh, in the band. Like when I started to go out on the road with my father, we had a little bit of an act at that point, and I knew his repertoire, which honeysuckle rose was a big part of it. I'd go to these jazz parties. Actually, the first one when I was about must have been just turned twenty one, and was in Odessa, Texas. They would do a whole week in a big ballroom in, of all places, Odessa, Texas. They'd fly all these musicians down. There was Red Norvo and Scott Hamilton and Warren Bachet and Jake Hanna and Cliff Lehman, who was in the Charlie Barnett Band, and Bob Haggard and Yank Lawson and Bucky and uh, Milt Hinton and Bob Haggard. And it's like, well, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> wrong place for me. And But I'd get on a bandstand and I would look at the bass player, and sometimes it was Bob Haggard, and I'd say, Bob, we might need a little help here. And then Bob would just sort of look at me and nod his head. And then if it was a song I didn't know, he would just play and look at me and hit the bass notes. And since I had sort of learned that way through Bucky, I would say, well, that's it. He's playing G now. And I, I, now I get one chance to hear the song all the way through, and, and that would be the, my trial by fire. So it was like I was starting to learn their language because I had good ears because that's the way Bucky would just sit and 
He'd say, here's the song, it goes like this, and he'd go, and he'd expect to hear a chord. And I'd say, and then he'd like look at me, he'd say, where is it? Like they'd start playing again, you know, it'd start growling. And you just, you sort of heard the harmonies. You had to start to hear things. You never got a lead sheet that had the chords on it. <laughs> You'd learn through fear. Knowing what an amazing guitarist you are, it's fun to look back at it. But in the moment when your father's looking at you for the chords and you've been thrown into the pool, basically, and hope you know how to swim. Move your arms. What was it like? It was terrifying, but... The funny part was, is like looking back at it, which we all end up doing. And I looked back at it when I was 21, when I was about 30. Then I, w I, I realized how great that thing was that I could go, just sing the melody to the song. If you want to sit in and I don't know the song, sing the melody. And I pretty much could figure things out. And if I only knew like half of the tune, because of learning like that on bandstands, I was a quick learner anyway. So that, that really helped. And there was a moment of terror, and then I sort of got a, a, a strange sense of confidence about three years in where I was like, you yeah, know, whatever they want to play, we'll figure that out. And my father was always like that. <laughs> three years can be a pretty long time, though. It was. It had its moments. I, and, you know, the funny thing was is there's a picture of my father and I in Zoot Sims. <laughs> we were playing a gig at um, NYU. There was a Jack Klein singer, had a series of concerts. He still does. And Zoot Sims was going to be the uh, mystery guest. They'd always bring out a special guest that nobody knew who it was. So my father and I were literally going to play four songs. It was the last time we had rehearsed <laughs> to this day where we sat down and we played like Love for Sale and something else and something else and maybe Honeysuckle Rose. And then Zoot Sims was going to come out. So we were in the dressing room. And I'm going, well, we're all rehearsed and this is going to be great. And then there's Zoot, okay. I went, wait a second. I said to my father, maybe we should ask Zoot what he wants to play. <laughs> you know, just in case. And there was another guy who was a friend of my dad's in the dressing room. My father said, hey, uh, Zoot, what do you think you want to play tonight? And so Zoot said, uh, stop it at Savoy. I cover the waterfront, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I went, uh, hey, Dad. I cover the waterfront. I don't know that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so my father says, hey, Zoot, uh, what about uh, I cover the waterfront? What key you do that one in? And he goes, oh, uh, you know, uh, E flat or whatever. And so he says, just play. Let me just see if I got it. So Zoot starts to play. Now, in the meantime, Kleinsinger comes in and he sees my father's friend and he they don't get along. And he says to my father's friend, you got to get out of the dressing room. No uh, non-working uh, personnel in the dressing room and and they and he goes no i'm staying in the dressing room and we're going i cover the waterfront da, 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 da. no you have to get out now oh yeah well no and then they have a real live fist fight and we're playing i cover the waterfront <laughs> and nobody wants to stop you know i'm like going keep going keep going and my and my father's going to play in c minor or whatever the chord he's going knock it off and he's just you know and they're fighting Real life, uh, uh, one of the few times I saw real punches being thrown, <laughs> but we wouldn't stop because I had to learn I covered the waterfront. But it was one of those uh, moments where that's how we learned songs. If you didn't know a song, you'd sort of uh, hope that someone would want to practice it real quick, and then you'd have to get it in your brain. <laughs> the glamour of show business. Yes. <laughs> John Pizzarelli got a musical education at home, but he was looking for something more formal. So in the late 70s, 
he headed off to the University of Tampa. I got a $500 a semester scholarship, and I also got paid $5 an hour or something to set up the chairs for the concert band, which had uh, three rehearsals a week. So I, I had like $45 at the end of the week. And I was really into the trumpet and learning, and I figured I'd get like a, a music ed degree there. And also the best part about oh, $30 I had at the end of the month is the uh, end of the week was um, they had a student discount. It was $5 for tickets to see the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Nice. In the Doug Williams years. And they had a good team that one year. So uh, that was fun. And, and uh, I was, you know, I was the guy who wanted to commute out of the four Pizzarelli siblings. And I ended up in Tampa. So that was not a good move. I enjoyed the music part of it and, you know, meeting other people and, you know, learning tunes and seeing what people were interested in and, you know, just trying to figure out what to do on a Friday night in Tampa in 1978. Woo! And so what leads to the decision for you to come home? Three semesters in Tampa was just like, I got to get out of here now. So my father was like, why don't you come home? We'll play. You can go to William Patterson. I'll get you into William Patterson. And so I got into William Patterson and we actually made a record. <laughs> as soon as I came home, we made our first record, which was called Two Times Seven Equals Pizzarelli. So the, we, we were literally starting to play gigs. I wasn't learning so much down there uh, that was of value to me at that point. It was just it was like, I have to get out of here. And I did. <laughs> and, at, and at that point, you come home, you're in your early 20s. Do you want to be Jackson Brown or James Taylor or has this notion of what would eventually be started to sink in for you? That was a huge moment. I did two semesters at William Patterson. And, and the only other gig that I had in those years was I was a camp counselor, night's day camp. I made a lot. I just saved all my money. And I said, at the end, I'm not going to go back to school in September. What I want to do is I want to take these original songs that I've written that were, you know, inspired by Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Billy Joel and all that stuff. I said, and I want to, I want to make a really good demo and see if I can shop my tunes. My father said, what are you doing? I said, no, this is, this is my thing. I've saved my money. My father had worked with Michael Franks and I met Michael Franks. We actually, he asked me to do a duo gig with him. And, and I spent uh, a night rehearsing at his place at dinner. I was saying, I want to do play my tunes, you know, and I want to get, see if I can get my tunes out there. And he said, well, this guy in my band, Ted Lowe, who's a keyboard player, he's really good. He actually plays all the instruments and he'd be a good guy to maybe produce that for you. So I got in touch with Ted. I had seven tunes on a demo and, and went and rehearsed. I was like, wow, this is, oh, they're starting to sound like tunes now. I had made old demos with my guys. And now it was like, you know, I'm breaking out. I made a demo tape of that. It was just a learning experience. And, you know, when you look, I listen back to it, I, you know, I know the, I listen and go, well, the songs aren't that good. <laughs> and I was starting to realize that, although I wrote songs all through the 80s, I would, it was more of like a diary. And a lot of the songs just sound like, one song will sound like Phil Collins, one sounded like Michael McDonald, one sounded like Kenny Loggins. There were Steely Dan songs. There was an outlet there that I still thought maybe this will work as something. But in the meantime, I was working with my father and my father was, was saying to me, you know, you're the only guy who plays jazz to support his rock and roll habit. And that was where I was making money so I could, you know, get some equipment and have a little sequencer and play the keyboard parts and the bass parts. 
I spent my 20s still thinking that maybe the songs would get a little better and they'd mean something. But uh, in the meantime, Nat King Cole got in the way. How does that happen? Working with my father, the first summer that I was home, I did eight weeks with him at the Pierre Hotel. We did seven to 11. I always joke that on the first night, I knew uh, six songs for a four-hour gig. And by the end, I knew you know about 160. All through that method of of him playing melodies and going, let's go, you know, people making requests and me just shaking my head. And he would say, you know, listen, actually it was at the beginning of that year. I uh, was working Monday nights with uh, a singer, a a buddy of mine from high school. And his sister gave me a record of a guy named Frank Weber and said, you should learn. There's a song on here called straighten up and fly right. And Frank Weber was like a sort of a singer songwriter, but there was this jazz tune and I learned straight up and fly right and played it for my father. And he was like, no, yeah, it's not a Frank Weber song. That's a, that's a Nat King Cole song. He goes, if you find those records, you know, you'll change your life. And I've found the best of the Nat King Cole trio parts one and two. I remember coming home and playing them on the hi-fi and I remember my father going, put on uh, Paper Moon, listen to, the, listen to how they start and finish. Put on uh, Body and Soul, listen to Oscar Moore play the guitar on this. Put on uh, uh, Route 66. And I was like, ooh, well, these are, this is not night and day, and I get a kick out of you. You know, they're singing about a highway. I can sing about a highway. Mm-hmm. That's much easier, you know, than saying I love you in a song, you know. When you're 21 years old. Right. So it was the perfect repertoire for me. And so when I started doing my little gigs, I'd play straight up, fly right, route 66 and frim fram sauce. And so in the middle of concerts with my father, we played all, you know, all the little, all the instrumental things that we knew. And somewhere in the middle, my father say, why don't you sing route 66? And so I'd sing route 66 and he'd say, uh, sentimental reasons. I'd sing uh, sentimental reasons and then straight up, fly right. And then we'd play honeysuckle rose and we'd go home. What I was finding out was this thing that was make, I was making a living at. I found something that I enjoyed doing inside of it, which was singing these songs. And what it had was there was fun involved in it. It was the same fun that you got from playing the Billy Joel songs. You got to play solos on the songs. They were swinging and, and it was fun. And it was like, oh, well, this is, it was finally something that I could wrap my head around that wasn't just playing guitar like my father. Now I, this, I had a voice that I could listen to and go, oh, this could be my own thing. This isn't just playing the guitar like Bucky. I can apply the guitar part, but then I got, I have a voice now, This these songs, which made it fun for me. Was there already a point in those early formative years where you recognized it's okay for me to be funny on stage? It's okay for me to tell quick stories on stage? Or is that something that you had to get comfortable doing. You always have the talent to do it, but is it something that early on, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm singing Nat King Cole songs. Oh, I can't do that. Or is it right from the start? Hey, look, this is who I am. And uh, hopefully it'll work. No, I think what it was, it's a great question because uh, what it was, was I'd go see my father play and he goes song, 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 song. And then I remember driving home with one night. I said, what's the one that goes da, 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 da. And he goes, that's Sweet Lorraine. I was like, okay. And then I, one, I remember he saying, What's the one that goes da 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 da? And he goes, Oh, that's Have You Met Miss Jones? And I went, oh, at one point, I was, I don't know if I ever said it, I was like, You want to tell people what's <laughs> <laughs> So when I got on the stage, I commanded the microphone 
and would say, and now we'd, we'd like to play for you having met Miss Jones or, or Sweet Lorraine or here's what we're going to do. But what really inspired me was I saw Billy Joel, Frank Sinatra, and Springsteen all within a 18-month period, two at the Brendan Byrne Arena and one at the, at the big stadium, giant stadium. Their presentation, this is when I was 25, I was going, oh, I loved how Billy Joel did three songs, then stopped, said, good evening, here's where we are, hope everybody's well, boom, big song. Sinatra walking around the way that he paced the show, and then what Springsteen was doing where he'd just sit and play some chords and talk to 76,000 people like they were in his living room. And I was like, well, I'm going to take all of that and apply it to what we're doing. So I wanted to always work in a story about something that happened to, to Bucky and me on the way to the gig or in my shows, it started to become, and I was a fan of George Carlin and Johnny Carson and, and all of that stuff was about timing and finding how to do that on stage. So that became a part of what I, was, I wanted to accomplish to bring everybody into the fold. Are there gigs along the way in those early years, perhaps at the Morristown Library, <laughs> where you wonder to yourself, is this going to work? The funny thing about the Morristown Library, it's the first place where my father said, I'll play the seventh string tonight. Because I had played, you know, the seventh string guitar, you have the regular, and then the low A. So instead of, you now have, you have this low bass note. And I had played it a little bit uh, at the end of high school and into uh, when I got back, you know, I'd played a little bit. And then my father, you know, but I was playing six string primarily with my father. And then one day we're going to the gig and he said, before we got in the car, he said, why don't you just play the seven string? I was like, oh, okay. So I had his Gretsch seven string. He had his seven string. And I remember getting to the gig going, what am I doing? We didn't rehearse this. <laughs> I never thought about whether or not it was going to work. I think it was mostly, I was sort of, fearless in a certain way that I thought, well, if I fall on my head, I fall on my head here. When I really started to put it together was when I started my own trio. And, and then we originally wrote out all the patter. And, you know, and that was totally not what I was supposed to do. And, and even today, when I work with my wife, Jessica, we say, we don't even work out the patter. It's sort of like we make, have it come naturally to us. And it becomes, it's like Nichols and May. They used to say they would just do stuff and then they would remember the good bits. And so that's basically what I was doing. But it took a while to get that together. <laughs> well, you told me once that initially you thought, uh, no, you and Jessica would not work together. Let's not do that. But then at a certain point, it was like, you know, she's the only one who's going to deal with this insanity and, and be okay with it. Originally, the call was, we want you, Jessica, and Bucky. And then Jessica and I said, no, we can't do that. And then they were like, well, how about Maureen McGovern or Lucy Arnaz or Sybil Shepherd or something like that? And then I was just like, do I really think Sybil Shepherd is, what is she going to think while she's standing backstage and my father's saying to me, you know, uh, you know that new baseball mat you had from all your childhood? Uh, I just threw it out. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the John Pizzarelli trio. What? <laughs> I can't, you know, and then fisticuffs. And then, uh, so <laughs> it was just, we, we, we had to keep it all in the family. So everybody understood uh, <laughs> what the hell was going on back there. I recall seeing you at a place called Jay's on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on Broadway in like 97th or 98th Street. And those were great shows in 1987, 1988, 89. Yeah. This is 
at a point where it's before uh, a, a tour that always gets mentioned in your career, touring, opening for Sinatra in 1993. So in those years, 87, 88, is your thought, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Or at that point, did you have goals like, all right, I got here, but here's the next goal I need to get to. That's what it was. It was, I knew where I, I was at a certain spot, but I still knew I had to get, it had to move forward. Jay's was like one of my only, that was like my gig with two of my friends. I was in New York City, so that was a big deal to do a Thursday night in New York City. I had two records out that at that time, a third one coming out on Stash, and they were, the third one was not so hot. The first one was really good, and the middle one was okay. So they were going in the wrong direction in quality, I thought. I had some good tunes, but I just didn't, the execution wasn't up to par. And even what I was doing at Jay's with the bass player and the drummer, I didn't find to be uh, as good as what I thought was what I wanted to do. They had more, it was like a sort of a, a Jim Hall, Bill Evans approach that they were coming from. So I was learning different tunes and we weren't playing It Had to Be You on that band stand. It was sort of, I sort of wasn't the leader. But the thing that turned it around was my father and I did a record with a violinist named Johnny Frigo. It was for a label called Chesky, and it was an instrumental record. It was a high-end thing where they would have one microphone hanging, and we'd all be around it with Butch Miles and Ron Carter or Michael Moore on bass. So they had this great little record label for audiophile. It was a big CD thing. So in 1989, that was a big deal. And so they kept saying, well, we were looking for, we want to get a vocalist. We want to get a, keep looking for a vocalist. So I said, well, I made some records singing. Why don't you come down to Jay's and see what we're doing down there? And uh, maybe that'll be something. And I thought, well, maybe this is where I can get to another label and get to something that might be something. And when I came off the bandstand, David Chesky had heard me. He said, well, okay, we'll get Clark Terry and Milt Hinton and your dad, and we'll make a record of you singing. And I was like, well, this is completely different and exactly what I need to do. That week was great because Dave McKenna was in town, so the great piano player from Boston. And we got Connie Kay to play drums, and here I was in a studio doing all these new tunes that I, I wrote all these little charts out and things. But the, the four or five years at, at Jay's had prepared me to, to go into a studio, and the work that I'd done with my dad, being on bandstands with Zoot Sims and thrown into the fire with all that. When I was sitting in front of Clark Terry and Milt Hinton and Bucky, Dave McKenna and Connie Kay. This was no time to go, hey, fellas, I need to take another um, take. Is that what you call it, a take? I'm going to do another take now. <clears throat> I mean, I knew I no screwing around. And, and actually, it was, it, it was also another lesson I learned that day. The first day was sort of a disaster. In those days, you know, records were 38 minutes, 40 minutes, and now a CD is 65. I'm going, I got four songs done, and I got about... 18 minutes with these guys, you know, they were like, I don't want to play on this. Well, no, you have to play on this one. So after the first day I was going, I had all these charts and all this stuff. And I was going, okay, you have to rethink this whole thing. I just got to go in and say, Hey, you want to play lady be good. Let's play lady be good in F and everybody play on it and take a few courses. And, and they were like, Oh, sure. Boom. Lady be good. Six minutes. You know, how about my blue heaven, Dave, if you play, I was like, you're with guys who know these songs. Why are you writing them out for them? Let them feel at home at what they're doing. So all of that, 
all that stuff at Jay's and all those little gigs and all that stuff where I, and I hit myself in the head and said, you got major leaguers here. You're not going to have any trouble with these guys if you just say F. <laughs> you know, it's going to work out. Was there a certain point, and you're playing all these gigs throughout the 80s with your father, is there a certain point where you kind of knew I need to establish myself on my own and kind of get away from the gigs with my father in order to one day maybe return to playing with your father? The only time that I did that was very early in the 80s. I had a group. I put a group together to play original music to open for a buddy of mine. His name was Grover Kemble. He had played a gig in Hillsdale, New Jersey, at a place called Traces. In those days, they just had big square rooms with a bar in the back and everything was carpet that smelled like beer and a stage. And that was a big night out. You know, everybody got their hands stamped and you gave $5 at the door. So Grover said, why don't you open for me? And I was like, good, I can try this original music thing out. And my father was going, I have a gig with Al Kyola tonight and you should come with me. And da, da. I said, I, I can't do it. I have my own gig. It was the only time that I've said, this is what I want to see if this is something. I've actually just found the cassette of it. It wasn't something. But it, that was the one time. And, and then when, the other time after that was once I had this record, this My Blue Heaven record with Clark and everybody, the guy Chesky, Norman Chesky said, you should put together a group and get a booking agent and a manager and get out there and plug the record. And it was the manager at that time who said, you know, you should do your own thing and establish that and then bring Bucky back. It wasn't handled well, but it was the right thing to do. It just wasn't uh, handled well. But that was really what happened at that point. We had to establish that group and then bring Bucky in. And what year are you talking about there? 90, 91, 92, somewhere in there. Because I made two records, All of Me and Naturally on RCA. And then right after that, right around that time is when I opened for Sinatra. How does one find out that they're being asked to open for Frank Sinatra? I was doing an interview with Australia or somewhere. I was at the BMG offices in New York City talking to somebody because I was going to end up going to Australia. So I was doing some pre-press stuff. And there was, excuse me, and they said, uh, how would you like to open for Sinatra? (laughs) Because he was going to tour Germany. He's going to do six concerts. The joke that I've always said is uh, they told me that I was going to open for them. It's like, great. And then two weeks later, they said, no, you know what they're going to do? They want to get a maybe a local comic, a German comic. And they realized two weeks later, there's no such thing as a German comic. <laughs> and so I was back on as the opener. That was another highfalutin moment, too. That was sort of crazy. Did you know at that point that you were ready, that you were good to go with what you were doing and confident enough that you were ready for this to open for Frank Sinatra, whereas perhaps a couple of years prior to that, would you have been ready to do that? Oh, no. I had 30 good minutes. I had the right charts. And the other thing that that took a minute was like, okay, I'm going to sing before Frank Sinatra. Uh, Okay. I got to pick this uh, material very carefully. I wanted to stick to songs that he didn't sing. Not, I, I actually opened with an instrumental that I played. I pretty much picked like three or four things and I had some good arrangements. I was ready. It was nerve wracking, but I was ready and the charts were good. I remember when we did the rehearsal, Bill Miller and Frank Sinatra Jr. sat in the front row as in Dortmund. 
and they sat with their arms crossed looking at me and I ran the it was 25 minutes with the band and I said hey band sounds great and we ended with sing 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 so we had it we bookended with instrumentals and I said band sounds great fellas <laughs> I said that we'll see you tonight and they're like you're done I said what do you want me to do? And they said, gee, Shirley MacLaine runs the band for two and a half hours when she opens for them. She goes, I said, well, this is, <laughs> I did what we had to do, you know? So I was relatively confident. I'd say about 78% to 83. <laughs> After you've established that, is, is there a different sense in playing with your father throughout those times during the eighties, as opposed to now you've toured with Sinatra You've been on The Tonight Show, you've been on Letterman, uh, you're playing the Carlisle and these venerated clubs uh, on a regular basis. Did the connection change at some point for you between you and him on the stage? No, you know, the only thing that changed, I think, was the fact that he let me play more single note solo. He let me solo more. <laughs> I, got, I got to be better. So like when I first played with him in the 80s, even with that Zoot Sims concert at NYU, you know, the funny part was the opening number was Stomp of the Savoy. So Zoot plays, and then, he, and then after he plays a solo, Bucky starts playing and I'm accompanying them. And then when Bucky was done, he looked back at Zoot and Zoot looked and he pointed around my father like, it's time for your son to play a solo now. And I remember my father's like just drenched in sweat, going like, no, don't ask the child to play. You know, <laughs> it's just, he's trying to protect me. But still, it was like, you know. So when we got to play together, then in the 90s, it was a lot, there was so much enjoyment to it. And also, I felt we were able to bring him out as the, the, you know, the big gun. You know, we could do our thing and say, now, Bucky Pizzarelli and everybody go, ah. That was great. I felt great being able to bring him on like, you know, this is the guy you want to come here. So that was what changed too, is that we got to a place where we had our little foundation, Ray Kennedy, Martin and I, and then we could bring Bucky out and go like, you know, and really have something. Is there a, a place that you recall really before the cheering started, a, a gig that you did that was memorable for all of the wrong reasons? That's a good question. I play a lot of weird places, you know, play in the middle of a mall by the fountain, the fashion center in Ridgewood, New Jersey. I'll take it as a compliment that you did not mention the 1984 Tom's River Founders Day Parade <laughs> that I, yours truly, hosted and you performed at. And I believe it was about 118, 126 degrees. It was a tad warm. That was the one on the boardwalk with Phil Bernardi when we were playing that day? Or was it outside a place where we played outside and it was it, it looked like I remember the symbols going into the macadam of the... It was definitely outside. Uh, did I yeah. mention that it was hot? I think I have pictures of that day. It was the yeah. last time I wore shorts when I was playing. <laughs> you mean on the Sinatra tour, no shorts, huh? It was, it, was a, it was a strict no shorts policy. Yeah, it's a good thing to have in your, a writer in your contract. <laughs> Just the opposite from a, a place that you played that uh, you remember for all the wrong reasons. Is there a moment other than the Sinatra tour along the way where you're playing somewhere and you're able to take a step back and say it's worked? I would say uh, the first gig at the Montreal Jazz Festival the booking agent said, what they want you to do is do two weeks. You'll do five nights. 
and there's a place called the Club Soda out just outside of Mont- you know, outside of Montreal proper. It was one of those clubs even David Bowie had worked or something, but it seated like 250 people. Same thing, carpet all over the place, but it was longer. So it wasn't as deep to the back wall. And they said, we'll give you a big band of a big opening night and tuxedos. And then you just do like Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, Saturday, you do two nights, two shows. And the first night of that thing, it's the first time with a band out of town and going, okay. And I had my own rhythm section. The first night was so like the roof came off the place. I remember thinking, well, that's what we wanted to do. That's what I was thinking about when I wanted to be Jackson Brown and James Taylor. That would, that would happen. And, and it happened playing Three Little Words and the Baby Medley and Splendid Splinter, all these tunes that we had. And I was like, well, this is great. That was one of the first times I was like, well, this is really something. And then the following year, we did a concert, Ray Kennedy Martin and I, in Vienna, uh, yeah, in, in Vienna, in France. And that was another one where we had just flown all over. The, we'd come from Japan to New York to France. It was called Dartboard Productions. I remember getting to Vienna and it was a big storm and we were like waiting and we were dead tired and we went on and everybody got us. It was one of those things where we're like, you, there's a video of it where I actually, you can see in the middle like, hey, our work has paid off here. You know, we've, we walked into Vienna and, you know, that went really well. And a lot of the Montreal nights, it was another one with uh, all the Bossa Nova guys where I remember Jessica and Jessica sang in the band too that night. And we were all lined up at the end bowing after like three encores where I remember Jessica saying, you got to remember this. This yeah. is really something. And there was a night even in Montreal where we did the Beatle concert with strings and and the big band and we did all the and Don Sebesky conducted and we did all the Beatle tunes and the same thing at the end going, well, that was where the record company had said, we don't really like the Beatle record. But Montreal was like, come up and do the Beatle record. And we would start tunes. I go, little darling, it's been a long time. I was like, wow, this is stupid. This is like all those dumb little things you ever dreamt about. They're like applauding for tunes. It's like Frampton comes alive. COVID has been especially hard on the Pizzarelli family. Both John's mother and father died early on during COVID within a week of each other. Pizzarelli and his wife, Jessica Malaski have done an hour-long show online every Thursday from their home called It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. For fans of his around the world, it's been a lifeline, a beacon of light in the darkness, and old songs have taken on new meaning. What's amazing is the uh, what songs get you and when they get you. I mean, if you've seen the program you have, I'll take requests at the beginning of the week, and then when I get to... Thursday nights on Facebook, you know, I got this list of songs. So I'm sort of looking at the list and I got it written down and I'll look at and I'll make an order. And then somewhere along the way, uh, like in the middle of, of, you know, I was, I've been here since March 13th of 2020. So somewhere in the middle of June or July of 2020, I start to sing, uh, we'll take Manhattan, the Bronx and Staten Island too. And by the time I get to the end of the song, or somewhere in the middle, I just can't sing. The songs me start going, yeah, Manhattan. Remember when we lived there? You know, or even there was a Michael Frank's tune one week called Don't Be Blue. And it's a happy song. <laughs> Don't be blue, you ain't got far to go. I remember singing that and I'm like in the middle of the song, I couldn't sing. The songs are all taking on different meanings. And 
there's like a, a, a rebirth of these songs, reimagining of them, that has been very moving. One more thing. How does a diehard Yankee fan become a diehard Red Sox fan? The floor is yours. Well, you know, uh, as, a, as, a, as a man who uh, wanted the number 20 on his back, not for Bucky Dent, but for Horace Clark. as he Nice, nice. Uh, I, was, I, I was a fan of those teams. And then uh, when they started to win, that was fun. And then when they started to lose, I didn't appreciate the, uh, the fact that, uh, you, you know, I don't think it was Dick Hauser's fault. And it was all about Dick Hauser losing his job after winning 103 games. Mr. Pizzarelli, for the record, is referring to 1980 when the Yankees won 103 games, then lost in three games straight. And not just because I was there at Yankee Stadium for game three when George Brett hit a home run off of Goose Gossage. And the Yankees promptly fired the manager, Dick Hauser, claiming that he, I believe, had a real estate deal in Florida that he was going off. Of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> providing some context there. So they fire Hauser and you decide what? Well, at that point, I had a couple of, uh, of uh, limbo years uh, highlighted by my purchase of from Manny's uh, Baseball Land in Hackensack, New Jersey, of a uh, uh, Cleveland Indians hat because Cleveland went uh, 62 and 100 and rehired Pat Corrales. Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember telling John Kennelly that at WNEW, and he goes, he's a good man, Corrales. <laughs> and so I wore my – and there's a picture of me and my friend Joe Cosgriff on opening day like in 83 where he had a wiffle ball game to start the year. And then uh, all my friends, Jonathan Schwartz, Cosgriff, and a bunch of guys were Red Sox fans. So I jumped on the Red Sox bandwagon I think in the late 80s and haven't turned back. Was there ever a plan B? Was there ever something else that you thought, if for whatever reason this doesn't work out, I could do this? You know, I, I have to say no. <laughs> there really wasn't a plan B. That's a very good question. I, I, as far as I know, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't hit. I would love playing baseball, but just the hitting I hear is part of the game. <laughs> I wasn't a good hitter. <laughs> and, you know, and every time I, you know, I cook a lot and I think, well, I could, I could get a little place. And uh, I could cook for people, and and uh, and then I speak to my friends who run restaurants. Say, you know, you no, 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 you don't want to. No, you want to just eat in restaurants. You don't want to do that. You know, all the little things you think you can do, and uh, the only thing I can do is play. I got rhythm, and tell a few stories, and it's it makes me very happy. Us too. Thanks, John. Thank you, Bud. John Pizzarelli. His latest album is called Better Days Ahead. Solo guitar takes on Pat Metheny. He also won a Grammy Award in 2021 as one of the producers of James Taylor's album American Standard, winning for Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album. And since our conversation, John is back out on the road, delighting audiences with his rare combination of musical virtuosity and wit. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.